Well, good morning, church. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, the passage from whence this church derives its name. And you won't see it in the passage unless you're reading the NASB. I have a New King James in front of me, but know that the word Maranatha appears there in Greek. And we'll get into that in just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 19. And again, before we get going, I ask for your forgiveness. I have to jet right after the sermon and the service is done because I got to go preach another one at my church. So um, I just want to say thank you for having me. And I'm not going to get an opportunity to sit down and chat and spend some time. But God bless you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Follow along with me as we read the end of this epistle. And then we'll come to God in prayer and ask for his help. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes this. The churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O come, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank and praise you for the exposition of your word. Your word, it teaches us how to think and how to discern and how to live in this world. Your word challenges us and exhorts us. And your truth compels us to press into deeper communion with you and to live our lives faithfully. We long to hear your voice. Lord, we hunger for your truth. Bless your people now as we worship with our ears. This we pray in the name of the risen and ascended Christ. Amen. There is a lot here in this little passage at the end of 1 Corinthians. Verse 19, we read of Priscilla and Aquila. They are important to Paul. They're mentioned in various other places in the New Testament. They helped Paul significantly and were an important part of bringing the gospel to Corinth and really to the ends of the earth. And perhaps some of you noticed, as you look down at verse 20, Pastor Eric, what's up with this holy kiss? Are we going to do this at NBC? Well, I've talked to Pastor Sam and he has confirmed that we are going to begin. No, we're not. We're not going to. We didn't talk about that at all, actually. But when we get there, verse 20, I'll explain all of that. And then verse 22, if you didn't notice, Paul issues a curse as he looks forward to the return of Christ. And he writes, come, Lord. Again, as I mentioned in the NASB translation, the Greek there is Maranatha, which is in fact an Aramaic expression, which means, as you know, come, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. This was on the lips of the early church regularly in the first 200 years of the church. And finally, as you noticed in verse 23, Paul ends with grace and love. He ends with grace and love. So we're going to look at all of that today. Let me give you an outline if you're a note taker, perhaps little notes to hang your thoughts on. First, we're going to look at this Christian couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And then we're going to look at this Christian greeting or the holy kiss. And then Paul's curse and the coming of Christ. And finally, 
Paul's concluding words. So first a couple, a Christian couple, and then a Christian greeting, and a curse in the coming of Christ, and finally concluding words. Now, bear with me. If you have your Bibles, open to the Old Testament and to the book of Numbers. Bear with me for a second as we look at Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I'm going to read from verses 5 to 9. Not the one of the more exciting passages in the Bible, and we've all read through these portions of Scripture, but here we go. Israel wandering in the wilderness. God's Word says this, Then the children of Israel moved from Ramesses and camped in Sukkoth. They departed from Sukkoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etham and turned back to Fihahiroth, which is east of Baal Zephon, and they camped near Migdol. They departed from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, went three days' journey into the wilderness of Itham and camped in Marah. They moved from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there. <laughs> so, from Elim to Dovka to Alush and Rephidim and to Ki'ath Habiroth, and then the text goes on to name all of these other places that we can't pronounce. Forty years, as you well know, of wandering. And you read passages like that, and we do often, and we think, okay, what do, what do I do with this list of names and this list of places? What do I do? This is not the funnest part of the Bible. But let me say this to you by way of application. You might be in transition. You might not even know where you are. You are where you are, but you don't know how long you're going to be here or there. You might not even remember where you've been in and out of so many places during your sojourn. But let me say this to you. You might not know where you are, but God knows exactly where you are. And he has kept a record, whether you have or not. He knows where you are and why you are there. And they say all of that because Aquila and Priscilla, they were a displaced people, this Christian couple. Aquila was a native of Pontius. He grew up along the shores of the Black Sea. Both Aquila and Priscilla, they were Jews. And they had, as, as far as we know, they had settled in Italy, near Rome, in Rome. But during the reign of an emperor named Claudius, there was an inquisition of sorts, and all of the Jews in Rome were exiled. They were exiled, which brought this married couple to Corinth. They were in Corinth. They were blue-collar. They were tent makers. And apparently they had no children. Well, at least no children that are mentioned in the New Testament. Now, as refugees and as exiles... Perhaps they thought, where are we? And what are we doing here? Why are, we, why are we here? What are we even going to do? And perhaps some of you this morning feel that way. What am I doing? What am I doing here? The Lord, for some reason or other, of which I cannot for the life of me understand... The Lord has perhaps relocated you, brought you to this place, 
to this church. Perhaps it's not geographic, but you, you feel this way at this stage in your life. Perhaps you're confused. You don't know where you are or why you are where you are. And perhaps Priscilla and Aquila felt this way. Perhaps Aquila and Priscilla felt exactly the way you feel. Until, until a little Jewish guy walked into their shop. A balding, short, bow-legged Jewish man with a unibrow and a hooked nose. Now, I don't know about all that. That description comes from the second century. From an extra-biblical source called the Acts of Paul. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila were confused. What are we doing here? Confused until this little Jewish man shows up. And they open up their home to him. And they give him a part-time job in their tent-making shop. Now listen, brothers and sisters, you might not know, but God knows. And he has kept a record of your sojourn. He knows where you've been and where you will be. So listen, beloved, like Priscilla and Aquila, make yourself available. Christianity is not so much about ability as it is about availability. I I love seeing the busy beehive that was before the service started. Everyone, well, those who are serving, making themselves available. Uh, And I was out there with Elder Sam, and and he had to do things for the first time. And uh, it took us about five minutes and uh, just to put the camera on the little thing. Right? Um, And there it was, availability, willing and ready to serve. Not so much about ability, but availability. The work of the gospel in Corinth was sustained by this husband and wife team. And we find out later in Acts 18 that they would minister to a man named Apollos who would become a prominent missionary and evangelist. God used Priscilla and Aquila. They may not have been comfortable. They may not have known why or or where they were, why they were displaced, why they were relocated. Nevertheless, they opened up their lives, their homes, their their hearts. They, They opened up their lives to the work of the gospel. And they made themselves available. And listen, they didn't get too comfortable in Corinth. And we discover that right here in chapter 16. We discover that they went with Paul, who is writing to the Corinthians from Ephesus. Paul is writing this epistle from Ephesus on the other side of the Mediterranean to the church in Corinth. And so while Priscilla and Aquila welcomed Paul into their home when they were in Corinth, they didn't get too comfortable. Because off they went to the city of Ephesus, another relocation, displaced again, but faithful no matter what, no matter the place, no matter the circumstance. Listen to this, Romans 16, verse 3. Priscilla and Aquila make it back to Rome. And in Romans 16, 3, Paul says this. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. And this is what he says about them. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their own necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. 
that is in their house. Paul says that they were fellow workers. Paul refers to them as partners and co-laborers. And that was a term of endearment that Paul reserved for those whom he trusted, who labored with and alongside of the apostle. They risked their lives for Paul's sake. And they put themselves and their well-being on the line for Paul's sake and for the sake of the gospel. And once again, now in Rome, we read from Romans 16.3, I read that their home became a church. Their home became a church. Priscilla and Aquila are an example of hospitality and love. And here, if you look down at your text, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 16. Here in verse 19, Paul writes to the church and he sends the greetings from Priscilla and Aquila to the church. He sends greetings back to the church where it all began for them, this ministry. Friends, we we should use our marriages and our homes and our relationships and our schedules. We should use all of these things like Priscilla and Aquila did. We should use all that we have for the sake of Christ and for the well-being of the church and for the spread of the gospel. Secondly, Paul says, look at verse 20. He says this. All the brethren greet you. And he says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, admittedly, most of you think this is weird. Uh, This isn't very uh, an American greeting, if I could say. And we aren't used to this. Now, I grew up in a Latin home where everyone hugs and kisses. I mean everybody. Okay, You meet them for the first time, you get a hug and a kiss. My sisters married Italian men, and it has become their custom and our custom to do the double cheek kiss, okay, the European thing. So this is no big deal, and it wasn't for me, but, but some of us are so germaphobe that a handshake has become almost too much these days. We're like, we're like pounding if we're brave, right? Now you think of this kiss, and you're like, oh my goodness, good Lord, all of the COVID stuff that's still going down, and this is like a nightmare, right? Holy kiss, my goodness. Now, our, our culture is about, not the kiss per se, but uh, handshakes. Handshakes and hugs or, or, or high fives. Now, friends, I'm not suggesting that we should implement the holy kiss. I'm not. But, but, there should be among God's people, in God's church, a sign or signs, if you will, of mutual love and affection. Signs of, of mutuality and fellowship among God's people, among God's church, among brothers and sisters. And so the issue isn't the, the kiss and all of that, or, or, or even the handshake per se, but it's that people know that we love and care for them. And, and friends, this kiss was, was more than social custom, because Paul, look what he calls it. Look at verse 20. He says this is a holy kiss. It is a holy kiss. In fact, Paul refers to this quote-unquote holy kiss and three other places in the New Testament. And that's kind of a lot of times. Four mentions, including this one, of this holy kiss. 
And friends, in ancient culture, like many European cultures today, this kiss was reserved for family and friends. This wasn't for everybody, in other words. And so this holy kiss should be understood as an expression of love, of our care and mutual affection toward brothers and sisters, if you will, toward the family of God. And again, I'm not saying that we need to implement the kiss. In fact, I think it would be rather culturally inappropriate. Nevertheless, in our day and age, especially today where isolation has become rampant, where isolation turns into separation, as God's people, as as brothers and sisters, as a family of God, our greetings and our salutations ought, they ought to express our warm affection and our love and our, our care for one another. I, I remember four months after this uh, pandemic started, we, we opened up our church for some outdoor meetings, for worship service outdoor. And my goodness, hugs and handshakes were flying left and right and bringing people to tears just to be in the presence of other brothers and sisters. And so friends, let me remind you, this isn't some kind of club. We're not in some kind of social club or society. This isn't a sports team. We're not, you all are not co-workers. This is not a lecture hall or some type of seminar. This is God's church. We are, you are God's family. We are brothers and sisters. Our love and affection, our unity and mutuality should be manifest. It should be manifest. Now, if that is what a kiss is for, how reprehensible and how abominable the kiss of betrayal. Do you remember this? Jesus said to Judas, he said, do you betray me? With a kiss. Friends, that's not what a kiss is for. In Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish along the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. And so, beloved, Judas turned that verse, Psalm 2, on its head. Kiss the Son and what He did to our Lord. Well, that's not what a kiss is for. And so this kiss here in 1 Corinthians 6, this holy kiss was how family would greet each other. In our culture, a bit different. Nevertheless, there ought to be signs and gestures within this church family that communicate unity and love, the unity and love that exists within the family of God. Now look at verse 21. Interesting, this verse. This kind of stuff, I geek out over these things. I love these, uh, these little side notes. Verse 21, Paul says this. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Interesting. Now if you're unaware, Paul was dictating his letter. This epistle, uh, he was dictating to his secretary, to his amanuensis, to his scribe, most likely a brother named Sosthenes, who is mentioned in chapter 1. But here Paul, Paul cuts in. And all of a sudden, if you were reading the original letter, you would notice that the handwriting changed. This was, if you will, his signature at the end of the epistle. Now, I, I don't know about you, but this kind of stuff thrills my heart because... 
Well, for one, as I write sermons, I write all my sermons with paper and pencil, right? I haven't transferred over to Times New Roman. So I'm writing everything out hand, long form. Now, if it were up to me and I was a Bible translator, and I am absolutely not, at this point in 1 Corinthians, I would have changed the font, okay? I would have changed the font for the last four verses to produce the same effect that would have been produced in those who were reading the original autograph. I would have done something like that, but whatever. That's never going to happen. So, Paul's signature. And this is our last two points here this morning. First, Paul issues, as you read in verse 22, a curse. He issues a curse, and he looks forward to the second coming or to the return of Christ. We sang songs today. Thank you, Samantha, for the songs that were sung. We sang about the second coming. There were verses, and you can take your program home and read those verses about the return of the Lord. So Paul here issues a curse, and he looks forward to the second coming. And listen to the curse in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Anathema is the word that's used. That's a strong word. Now, Paul is not condemning unbelievers here. He's not condemning non-Christians here to eternal judgment. I don't think that Paul is referring specifically to non-believers here generally. But rather... Rather, to those who were in the church, who were visibly in the church, but were fakes. They were fakes, religious phonies, spiritual hypocrites who were playing a part, who were playing Christianity. Now, all such pretenders, Paul says, let them be accursed. Friends, the church of the living God is no place for pretenders. For religious phonies. For those who feign religion for reasons other than love for God. They don't love Jesus Christ. And these folks will happily fake it for all kinds of reasons. Now interesting, as you look at that verse, Paul uses the word, and perhaps some of you are familiar with the love language that's used in the New Testament. He uses the word phileo here. Phileo, this is where we get the title of the city, Philadelphia, right? City of Adelphos, brotherly, philos, the love of brothers. It's the city of brotherly love. Now, interesting, Paul uses the word here for love in verse 22, phileo. And perhaps you've heard the breakdown of the Greek words. There's, there's eros, which is a sensual kind of love. And there is phileo, again, I mentioned it, brotherly kind of love. And then we all know, perhaps not all of us, but we all know the love of God, right? The agape love, God's love. And and so, of course, we would naturally prioritize the agape. That's what we should have, right? We should have this divine love of God, this agape love. But friends, it, it is overly simplistic to just break down the words and say... This means that, and that means this, and this means that. In fact, back in John 21, when Jesus restores Peter, you remember what Jesus asked Peter? He said, do you love me? He says, do you love me? And he asked him three times. He says, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And the last time he asked, Peter was, well, he was trembling as it were. And Jesus said, he said for the last time, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. 
And you remember that Jesus accepted Peter's love, his phileo, if you will. Now, I do not believe that this phileo was somehow some kind of lesser love. In fact, the New Testament refers to God's love for his son and vice versa as a phileo love. John 5.20. In Revelation 3.19, Jesus refers to his people, those, those whom he reproves and, and those whom he disciplines as those whom he phileos. He loves his people. And here in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 22, we must be those who phileo God, who love God. So what is the emphasis right here? Why did Paul use this word instead of agape? So, hear it in translation. This is uh, my best crack at it. Now, I think the emphasis, before I give you my translation, I think the emphasis is important because it helps us discern who are truly in Christ and who are not truly in Christ. Here it is. If anyone does not have a tender affection, a heart that seeks God, let him be accursed. And so the word phileo is used to describe often, as I mentioned, brotherly love. Love between friends. This love is such that you desire to be in the presence of another. In the presence of another person. You seek communion with such a person. And when you love someone like this, there is a delight, you understand. A longing to be with that person, communing with that person. And friends, this is the visible difference between true love for God and a love that is merely lip service. Between those who truly love God and those who feign love. And this is why I believe Paul used the word phileo here. Because a sign, one of the signs of a child of God is that they long to be in the presence of God. They long to be in God's presence. There's a thirst for communion with the living God. There's a desire, a heart that seeks after Him. And so Jesus said, do you phileo me, Peter? And He said, Lord, you know that I love you that I long to be in your presence and that I seek to commune with you. And Peter was saying, imperfect and failing as my love is. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. And so friends, if you're playing Christianity, you need to stop that right now. And let me say to your credit, it's harder to play Christianity in a small church because <laughs> you get to know each other, don't you? And you see each other. You live as it were in a fishbowl. What a great place to live. For all to look in and to walk with us. To see our love and let our love encourage other brothers and sisters. So if you're playing Christianity, you need to stop that now. If you don't love Him and if you don't desire God or long to be in His presence or live for His glory, then it doesn't matter all of the religious talk, all of your religious profession, all of your religious achievement. Paul says... Those things that were once gained to me, Philippians chapter 3. He says, I count them all as loss, rubbish, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In comparison to my relationship with Jesus, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. 
Not my own righteousness, Paul says, but the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith. And so Paul says here at the end of this epistle, do you have this phileo? And if you don't, when he returns, he will unmask the hypocrisy and expose false religion. Pretend Christianity. Pretend Christians are not Christians. They will be accursed. Anathema Maranatha. That is a serious warning. That is a serious warning. Now, perhaps you're nervous. You've listened to this exhortation, this curse. And if you're being honest with yourself, you're thinking, I know my heart, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so you're thinking, if I can't know it, am I real? Am I real? Do I really love the Lord my God? You might be thinking, oh my goodness, I am a phony. I am a hypocrite. And perhaps you're nervous right now. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon. Oh, it's always good to listen to Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. If the preacher says anything about hypocrisy, very often the hypocrites will not take it to heart. But the most sincere saint in the congregation very likely says, Oh, I am afraid that I'm a hypocrite. Spurgeon says, If you are a hypocrite, you are an odd sort of hypocrite. For I never knew a hypocrite who was afraid that he was one. And so let the Spirit of God continue to convict us as we consider our own profession and our own phileo, our own love for God. Finally, Paul's concluding words here. And please note that Paul closes this epistle with his favorite phrase of all time. If you look at verse 23, he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, in Christ And Paul says in verse 23, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Listen to how this epistle began. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1.3 Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are important words and phrases here. Grace and, and love. And we see there, in Christ. Now, now I know you know what grace is, God's grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's do a quick recap here, okay? Let's define some terms toward the end. Justice. What is justice? Justice is getting what you deserve, okay? Mercy now, it's another definition, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Okay, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And then grace is getting what you don't deserve. This is the grace of God. He loves to give to us what we don't deserve. This is what the Reformed referred to as sola gratia, grace alone. One of the five solas of the Reformation, as you well know. Christianity is a religion of grace. The gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ is a message of grace. God's grace in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Hear the gospel, beloved. Hear it now with these definitions. We deserve justice, the penalty of our sins, the wrath of a holy and good and righteous God. Condemnation is what we deserve for our sins and eternal separation from God's kindness and love. 
But, but in God's great mercy, He has not treated us as our sins deserve, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10. Instead, instead He gave to us and to the world what we did not deserve. He sent His only begotten Son, eternally begotten, not made. He came as a gift of grace, by God's grace alone, to be the sacrifice for our sins. To take upon Himself the penalty of our sins, to receive the just penalty, not for His own sins, for He had none, as you know, but for ours. He stood in our place, absorbed the just and holy wrath of God on the cross. He was crucified in our place as our substitute, as a substitutionary sacrifice. He died on the cross. Why did he die? For the wages of sin is death. But death could not contain, as you know, the author of life. And he rose from the grave on the third day. He defeated death and became the author of salvation from sin, from death and hell, from eternal condemnation for all who believe. This is what Scripture teaches. Sola Scriptura. This is the message of God's Word. The whole of the Bible. This message is to be received by faith. God calls all sinners everywhere to repent and believe. To confess that they are sinners. Do you understand? It's not that we're just sin. We just sin. That's not the problem. The problem is that we are sinners. We have nature issues. We have heart problems. And so we confess that we are sinners and deserve justice. But because of God's mercy, He has not punished us as of yet. Why? So that we might believe and put our trust in Christ. This is what the reform referred to as sola fide. To receive from God what we don't deserve. We receive it by faith. And what do we receive? The grace of God. Sola gratia. His grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Salvation and redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. Adoption into His family. Right standing and a relationship with the living God. Eternal life. By God's grace alone, sola gratia. All of this comes to us in Jesus alone. This is what Paul says, in Christ, sola Christi. All, all of it to the glory of God, sola Deo glory. And Paul says... He says to the church right here, he says, grace and love. The grace of Jesus Christ. And he says, all of my love in Christ Jesus. Again, that's his favorite phrase right there in verse 24. In Christ. In Christ. He uses this phrase 140 times in his epistles. 180 times in Christ appears in the New Testament. And 140 of those references are Paul. For I am convinced that nothing, remember this one, no one is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God took Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. Philippians 3, 9. Not having a righteousness of my own, he says. Derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
Colossians 1.17, And He, that is Christ, He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. In Him. Ephesians 1. You guys know this passage. God has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ, Paul says. We're adopted in Christ into God's family. We are accepted in Christ. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the riches of His grace. In Christ, one day, all of human history and all of creation will be summed up and gathered together in Him. In Him also, we have obtained an inheritance. We have placed our trust, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, in Him. In Him, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You get the point. This is Paul's favorite phrase. And no doubt, one of the most important phrases for all of us Christians. In fact, that's what it means to be Christian, doesn't it? It means that we have put our faith in Christ. And we now identify with Him. He is our all in all. He is over all and He is in you all. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And Paul says this, my love be with you all, with all of you in Christ Jesus. Now that's an important phrase, with all of you. Why? Because if you read Corinthians, let me just say it this way. The, the Corinthian church was messed up. It was, it was jacked up. They had all kinds of problems. But Paul says, I love all of you. My love be with you. All of you in Christ Jesus, with all of them, all of the divisive people from chapter one and chapter three, with all of the Christians who were falling into and being influenced by worldly ideology and philosophy, chapters one to four. Paul says, I love all of you. My love be with all of you proud, loud mouth boasters in Corinth. I love you. With all of the immature Christians who are struggling with sexual sins in chapter 5. With those who were, who were, they were taking each other to court and suing each other in chapter 6. My love be with all of you. With all of you in Christ Jesus. All of your marital problems, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. With all of your idolatry issues, chapter 8 and 10. With all of, all of your violation of cultural norms, chapter 11. Your chaotic worship services. What an important thing to hear in a divided church. People fighting about spiritual gifts, chapters 12 to 14. Where unity was being fractured. He says, my love be with you all. With all of you in Christ Jesus. What an important thing to hear. This is where, friends, we, this is where the church needs to park the car, as it were. This, this is where we must begin as we think about ourselves, our struggle, our identity. This is how we should think about the church and all of her issues. We've all been through the meat grinder, have we not, in the past two years? How important to hear these words. Especially in such a divided world and culture. Paul wrote in chapter 1. He said this. Is Christ divided? And we would say no, absolutely not. Then neither should his church be. For we are in him. In Christ Jesus. One church. 
one family of God. One with our Savior and Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Loving and gracious God, we come before you confessing our sins. We love you, Lord, and, and yet we pray more love to thee. We love you because you first loved us. And it is with your love that we can even love. That we can even love you in return. And so we pray all the more, increase our love, more love to thee. This is what you desire and require of us, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. This is the first great commandment. And so, Lord, command what you will and give to us what you command. Increase our faith and trust in you. Faith as not in ourselves and not of ourselves, but as a gift of God. And by this faith we know that we have the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of our bodies and souls, and the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is now our hope and peace, nothing but the blood. This is all our righteousness, nothing but the blood. This is, this is our hope. Hallelujah. Glory to God most high, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One divine essence. Three divine persons, both now and forevermore.